The soldiers fought bravely, courageously, and resolutely counterattacked the enemy, but were not able to force him back. The large forces, the Germans, continually under cover of a smokescreen and aircraft and artillery, sent waves of reinforcements to its troops dug in on the south shore. Resistance by remnants of the 95th and 345th Rifle Divisions, the 79th Marine Brigade, 2nd Marine Regiment, and other parts, was weak, but they showed great courage. Most importantly, our gunners had very few shells. All along the southern shore, bloody battles and melees took place. Soviet sailors fought bravely, repeatedly attacking the enemy and firing on the landing parties with mortars and machine guns, but were unable to withstand the onslaught of the superior forces of the enemy, and they began to move away. All day, the 22nd and 24th Infantry Divisions attacked the southern shore of the bay. In the afternoon, they launched a decisive attack and began to move to the Killen Ravine and the Susdal Height, which they were able to capture by the end of the day. Welcome to episode 28 of Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. This episode is part two of the Battle of Sevastopol, June Scottbury. I'm podcasting, as always, from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. Before I go any further, I'd like to give you a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, you can support it through Patreon. Any contribution gets you advance notice of episodes plus bonus episodes for patrons only about the wars that led up to the German invasion of the USSR in 1941, as well as intriguing personalities like Georgi Zhukov, and Konstantin Rokossovsky. Just search for me or Beyond Barbarossa on Patreon, or for a quick way, visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. We left off last episode, so that was part one of this mini-series on the Battle of Sevastopol in 1942, on the date of June 16th, 1942, almost the halfway point of Germany's final attempt to capture the most important port in the Crimean Peninsula, Sevastopol. This campaign would ultimately take 28 days. Remember, though, that uh, German commanders had planned a three-day campaign to capture the city, the base of the Red Navy's Black Sea Fleet. Two weeks after the beginning of it, they had killed a lot of Soviet soldiers, sailors, and civilians. They had destroyed buildings, sunk ships, and overrun defensive forts and gun emplacements. But they had also lost heavily, suffering thousands of casualties. 
that's men killed, wounded, missing, or captured. Now, that three-day plan had divided the available forces of the German 11th Army into three pincers. The four divisions of the 54th Corps would move down from the north to the shore of Severnaya Bay, sometimes called Sevastopol Bay. The 30th Corps of another four divisions would move up from the southeast into the city. And the Romanian Mountain Corps of three divisions was attacking in between. Take a look at the map on the website for this episode to give you a good visual understanding. Now, on paper, the Germans had a powerful force. In addition to those 11 divisions, they had the latest German weapons, machine guns, submachine guns, grenades, mortars, and artillery. The artillery included some super heavy guns that I described last episode, Thor, Odin, and Dora, the biggest cannons ever made that fired shells weighing tons. The Germans also had an air fleet of the Luftwaffe, which bombed the city almost continuously, and whose dive bombers struck ships, defensive points, and fortifications with deadly accuracy. But Sevastopol is surrounded by rough, hilly, forested terrain cut by steep ravines and valleys. And more than once, the Germans described the Soviet defenders as fighting like devils. So the Germans were able only to grind slowly closer to the city. But closer they came, killing the defenders and degrading the fortifications, sinking ships that brought supplies and reinforcements and evacuated the wounded. This terrain allowed the Soviet defenders to create a lot of very strong defensive positions, bunkers and machine gun nests and gun emplacements, protected and hidden from any attackers. On 17th June, the German 54th Corps launched attacks on the last remaining Soviet forts north of Severnaya Bay with remnants of four regiments, as well as 12 Stug III guns and captured Soviet tanks. Now, a lot of those Soviet forts were connected to forward gun and machine gun emplacements by ditches, walls, and in some cases, tunnels. It took the Germans two weeks to complete their advance southward from the Beldak River to the north shore of Severnaya Bay. On the way, they suffered massive casualties, but they took even greater casualties. One by one, they destroyed and overran Soviet machine gun and artillery positions and captured the forts. I'll describe the fate of one as an example. The North Fort was one of the last to fall. It was surrounded by the Germans in the evening of 19th June. In the previous few days, the defenders here had lost 732 killed and 1,317 wounded. Small groups of survivors went down from the fort to the bay at an emplacement called St. Michael's Battery, where they intended to cross the Sevastopol by boat. About 120 of them were selected, yeah, selected, right, to stay behind as a rear guard. They had three machine guns, two 76mm and two 45mm artillery pieces in a large concrete bunker 
but it turned out there were not enough boats at the battery to transport everyone. So most of the people who did escape were officers. The Germans stormed the remaining defenders in the early morning of the 20th of June with mortars, artillery, and airstrikes. The defenders fought until they ran out of ammunition. It took until the 22nd of June, the anniversary, by the way, of the launch of Operation Barbarossa, for the Germans to isolate St. Michael's Battery, and more boats were sent to evacuate the last of the survivors. But again, there weren't enough boats, so some of the men tried to swim across the bay. Only 38 made it. The previous day, the 21st, the Germans brought in fresh units to attack from the south, and Stukas dive-bombed the Sapun Heights, the second line of defense to the southeast of Sevastopol itself. The final assault. Over the next week, after the 21st, the Germans steadily moved around the eastern end of Saturnia Bay, while the Soviets fought stubbornly in redoubts and tunnels. As they retreated, they blew up their former defenses. By 26 June, the Germans had captured most of the ancient Tatar forces at Inkerman, at the end of the bay where the Black River flows into it. Through all of this, the Luftwaffe continued to drop bombs, 2,500 to 4,000 every single day, on troops, the city, the harbor, and any other target they could find. Despite continued shipments, Food, ammunition, and fuel were running out for the Soviets. No matter how bravely or how well the Soviet soldiers, sailors, and civilians fought, by the end of June, it was obvious that the end was coming. On 29 June, the Germans successfully crossed Severnaya Bay from the north, something the Soviets had feared for over a year. On that day, at 0200 hours, Red Navy got reports of Italian torpedo boats and small German ships trying to land troops near Cape Fiolent. That's the southern point of the peninsula that extends south of Savernea Bay, basically opposite the bay. In other words, a diversion. At the same time, General Morganov, commander of coastal defense, and the man whose words opened up this episode, he reported, quote, at 0200, the Nazis opened a massive artillery and mortar fire throughout the area of the southern coast of Savernaya Bay, from Killen Ravine to the power station. End quote. According to German reports, at that time, soldiers began loading into boats and began crossing the bay. Noise of their engines matched by the sound of aircraft overhead and all those artillery explosions. At 0235, so 35 minutes later, they laid down a smoke screen as they approached the south shore. While the Soviets claimed to have destroyed 17 boats on the water as they crossed, the Germans claimed their first wave landed secretly, without opposition, catching defenders off guard. But some of the attackers met stubborn opposition from well-fortified positions on the south shore. By the afternoon, the Germans launched a decisive attack and captured the Killen Ravine and the Susdal Height at the eastern end of Savernea Bay by the evening. That same day, the 29th of June, the Germans were moving up the slopes of the Sapun Heights on the southeastern side of the city as defenders and bunkers there ran out of ammunition. Around midday that day, an immense double explosion rocked the ground throughout the city. 
one Red Army soldier reported being, quote, picked up from the ground and with great force thrown into the swamp, end quote. These were followed by more explosions, sending debris and smoke to darken the sky and flames that lit up the whole city, which was very big, as explosions go. It came from the eastern extremity of the city, the ancient fortress and monastery of Inkerman, where the Chornea or Black River enters Severnaya Bay. It seems that a sparkling wine factory used the tunnels under the monastery's storage. But so did the Red Army to store ammunition. That evening, Soviet submarines started evacuating senior personnel and money from the state bank. The defenders withdrew farther west into the city and then out of it again, ultimately to the Chersonese Peninsula, where there is an airfield and a harbor. Again, I refer you to the map on the website. Boris Vyatkov, whose writing I quoted at the beginning of the first episode in this series, was a journalist who was in Sevastopol covering the battle at this time. On the 29th of June, he wrote, quote, The message was passed on that the aim of the battle ahead was to kill the greatest number of German enemy possible. Only the wounded would be evacuated. The end had come. The city was racked by huge explosions. Everything that could not be carried away was blown up. Damaged guns were pushed into the sea to prevent them falling into German hands to be used as scrap metal. Horses were drowned or shot. Step by step, the Russians pulled back. Sailors, gunners, cavalrymen, pilots, riflemen, women, and young adults. The final battles were bloody and futile. Forced to the sea, they continued to fire on the Germans until their ammunition ran out. End quote. So that brings us to the end of the 29th of June, 1942 in Sevastopol, Crimea, which is actually a good place to take a short break and we'll come back and begin on the next day, the last phase of this terrible battle. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian, Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941, just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. In three volumes, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, the Eastern Front Trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin. You can find the three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon, or purchase the three-volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. To learn more about the Eastern Front Trilogy, visit scottburyauthor.com. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast 
Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back to episode 28 of Beyond Barbarossa, part two of the series on the fall of Sevastopol. On the 30th, the Germans closed in on the city with heavy air and artillery bombardment. Infantry overran the last defensive positions outside the city core. Major General Ivan Petrov, commander of the Crimean Front of the Red Army, ordered all available forces to cover the evacuation from Sevastopol City to the Chersonese Peninsula airfield, and forces moved there, according to Clayton Donnell, in orderly columns. Defensive fighting moved to street fighting, quote, to inflict maximum damage on the Germans, end quote. The senior officers, including the two top commanders, Vice Admiral Philip Okiberski and General Ivan Petrov, flew out, leaving the defense in the command of Major General Pyotr Georgovich Novikov. But by this point, all the defense left were a few holdouts, cut off from retreat and from each other, in scattered pockets, fighting to the death. Donnell puts it this way, quote, The top echelons got away as soon as they knew the base was doomed, leaving the soldiers and sailors to fend for themselves. End quote. An assortment of boats and ships evacuated a pitifully small number of people, including 600 senior officers. General Novikov left by boat on the night between July 1st and 2nd and vanished from history. On the 2nd of July, 1942, the Germans attacked the last line of defense across the Western Peninsula. The front line of Soviet troops, instead of running, rushed the enemy, taking them by surprise. One survivor described how the Germans ran when they saw the rushing, desperate Red Army soldiers, even leaving behind three guns. Later that day, the Soviets launched another counterattack, pushing the Germans back another mile. But by the third, there was nothing more the remaining defenders could accomplish. By noon on the 4th of July, the Germans captured the Chersonese airfield. Over the next week, all that was left for them to do was mopping up, clearing defenders from caves and ravines and ruins. A few Soviet survivors attempted to get past the German lines and join partisans in the mountains, but most of them were killed. Officially, the Battle of Sevastopol ended on 16th July, 1942. The three-day campaign had taken 28 days. The Germans had seized an important port, and as Hitler put it, secured for the time being a land aircraft carrier, and a key objective for the upcoming Operation Blue, the attack on the Caucasus area and its valuable oil fields. In this campaign, the Germans captured 467 guns, 
26 tanks, 86 anti-tank guns, 69 anti-aircraft guns, 758 mortars, and hundreds of small arms. They shot down 123 Soviet aircraft and destroyed another 18 on the ground. They claimed to have captured 87,000 men, but most historians say this number is exaggerated. They put the number closer to 50,000. 50,000. That's still a huge number. Not as big, admittedly, as the encirclements at Smolensk or Bryansk, and especially at Kiev, but it's still an immense loss. But it was at a huge cost. As Admiral Okubersky, the commander of the Red Navy forces in Crimea at the time, said in his memoirs, it was a Pyrrhic victory. Quote, they marched in over mountains of their own dead. They lost much and gained a heap of ruins. End quote. The cost in other resources was enormous as well. Nearly, they, they used nearly 60,000 tons of bombs and munitions. The Germans suffered 27,000 casualties, including 4,327 dead and 1,591 missing, which means probably dead. The Romanians, on top of this, lost another 1,597 dead and 277 missing. The major blow, though, was that the now depleted 11th Army was unable to take its planned role in Operation Blue, supporting the 6th Army as it moved east towards Stalingrad. Instead, Manstein was promoted to Field Marshal, and part of the 11th Army moved north to Leningrad. The rest was divided between Army Group Center and Army Group South, and the 11th Army was officially deactivated on the 21st of November, 1942. Now, if it seems I've gone into a lot more deeper detail in describing the Second Battle of Sevastopol than just about every other battle so far, except maybe Typhoon or the Battle of Moscow. But anyway, it's because the Battle of Sevastopol, I think, epitomizes the whole war in the East. The Soviets were up against the wall, almost cut off from reinforcements. The Germans thought this campaign would just take three days. Like the whole war so far, Sevastopol showed just how far off the German high command's calculations were. Instead of three days, capturing Sevastopol took four weeks, and it took more resources in terms of ammunition and people than forecast. The Germans brought in reinforcements more than once. And the cost in terms of fuel, and most important casualties, was an order of magnitude more than the planners dreamed. To quote again from Clayton Donnell's Defense of Sevastopol, 1941-1942, 11th Army's casualties and material losses were so high that it was no longer a viable fighting force in its own right. End quote. And uh, I'll end the description of the Battle of Sevastopol with the conclusion of Mr. Donald's excellent book. Everything remaining of value at Sevastopol was destroyed by the Soviets. The paraphrased words from the Crimean guidebook 
1876 seem very fitting once again to describe Sevastopol in July 1942. Quote, All of Sevastopol's value lay in its historical past. It was once again only famous for its historical ruins. There was almost no population, and for many houses gaped broken windows and broken walls. The whole city is littered with new graves. Wherever you go, you will stumble on them everywhere. Sevastopol is once again a dead town, a city of the dead. End quote. I want to thank you very much for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. As always, you can find a map of the Battle of Sevastopol on the website for this episode. There's also more historical photos uh, of the weapons that the Germans brought in and uh, also the, uh, the situation at the time. Just tune your web browser to beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com and then scroll down to this episode. You can also listen to every episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. I'll invite you to keep listening to Beyond Barbarossa as we approach our first anniversary in June. Because of that, the next episode will not appear in two Mondays from now, but will be delayed a bit more so that it goes live on Thursday, 22nd June, the 83rd anniversary of the launch of Operation Barbarossa. It's going to be a special episode, so please don't miss it. And as always, thanks to everyone who supported the podcast through Patreon. You can become a Patreon patron as well for any amount. And that gives you not only advanced access to the episodes, also bonus episodes for patrons only about the wars that led up to Operation Barbarossa and interesting characters like Konstantin Rokossovsky and Georgi Zhukov. The money that's raised through Patreon and through advertising and everything else, for now, goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees until every Ukrainian refugee can return home safely. Another way to support the podcast is to follow or subscribe to it on your preferred podcasting app, whether that's Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify or whatever. And if you could, please consider leaving a rating or review. This really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you have any comments, questions, ideas, thoughts on this part of, the, of history, or if you find I've made an error, please let me know. Reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.